0: What are you afraid of? Do you have arachnophobia, fear of spiders? How about glossophobia, fear of public speaking? Or ophidiophobia, fear of snakes? By now, everyone has cyanophobia, which is fear of snow. (laughs) And nobody has thermophobia, which is fear of hot weather. I think most of us, can identify something that we are afraid of which makes today's impossible command so shocking cuz that command is don't be afraid some impossible commands are only given once or twice in the bible so we can easily gloss over them be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect well that's only found in Matthew 5:48 Now, there's lots of stuff in the Bible about God being perfect, but that command only occurs once. The same way with 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray continually. There's lots of stuff in the Bible about prayer, and Jesus teaches us to pray, and he gives us the Lord's prayer. But only once are we commanded to pray continually. That's in 1 Thessalonians 5. But, But don't be afraid, on the other hand, shows up 23 places in the Bible. And that's just the contraction. If you add, do not be afraid, that's another 76 times. Now, not all of these are given as commandments. But still, that's 99 times in the Bible someone is told, don't be afraid. That's kind of an overwhelming number. Hard to ignore that. So let's narrow it down a little bit. And and let's just pick one place in the Bible where the command, do not be afraid, is given, or don't be afraid, is given. Now, we could pick Luke chapter 5, where Jesus tells the disciples, don't be afraid, from now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. I mean, that's a good one. Don't be afraid to follow Jesus. Or we could look at Luke chapter 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. That's a good one too. But I think we'll go with a less familiar story. One that occurs in 2 Kings chapter 6. This happens during the time of the prophet Elisha. And we start with verse 8. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. Now Aram is what we would call Syria today. And even today, Syria and Israel don't get along. You know, some things seem to never change. So verse 9, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel. Man of God is Elisha. Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God, and time and time again, Elisha warned the king so he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? The king of Aram knows there must be a traitor somewhere. There must be a mole, a spy. Which one is it? His army is not doing as well as he thought it would. So there must be a traitor in their midst. And, and like Putin in Russia, they need to find this traitor so they can be eliminated you know, it's, uh, it's interesting over in Russia the number of uh, people in, in the inner circle of, uh, of the government there that, that have suddenly come under suspicion and then had something terrible happen to them, like defense official Marina Yakina, who mysteriously fell out of a 16th-floor window, or the head of the Moscow Aviation Unit, Anatoly Gerashenko, who died falling downstairs, or General Alexis Maslov, who suddenly fell ill and died after coming under suspicion by Putin. Like Putin, the king of Aram suspects that there is a traitor in their midst who must be ferreted out so they can get rid of him, and he demands to know who that traitor is. Verse 12 None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. It's like he's got a bug in there. He knows exactly what you're saying, even in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back that he's in Dothan. So they sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. The servant is scared, and legitimately so. I mean, wouldn't you be afraid if you woke up and looked out your bedroom window and, and there was an army surrounding your place? There really are scary things in the world. Cancer is scary. Carjackings are scary. Bankruptcy is scary. Homelessness is scary. Driving on the streets of St. Paul right now with all the potholes is scary. (laughs) There are scary things in this world, truly frightening things. And yet, listen to Elisha's reply to his servant's fear. Don't be afraid. The prophet answered, there it is, don't be afraid, the prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Don't be afraid, those who are with us are more than those who are with them, with that army out there. Now has Elisha gone mad? There's the two of them, his servant and him, and, and maybe if If you count the townspeople, you you got a few more. But what's that compared to an army? Remember God's mysterious math from uh, a few months ago where Gideon learned that God plus you equals more than enough? But this isn't a math riddle here. Elisha means it literally. Don't be afraid. There are more who are with us than against us. The problem is his servant can't see them. He can't see that. All he sees are those against him. And sometimes their problems are so big and frightening that that's all we can see, right? All we can see is what's against us. And we're paralyzed by fear. And that's how it was for the servant. He's scared out of his wits. And so, Elisha prays, verse 17. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The servant is afraid because all he sees are those against him. So Elisha prays, for him to see the reality of the situation, that God is protecting them. He doesn't have to be afraid anymore. Now, now, the problem is that the Aramean army still can't see the chariots of fire either. And so they attack anyways. And you may be thinking that what we're going to see here is a big battle scene with the Aramean army fighting these, these horses and chariots of fire. And it'd be like some uh, Hollywood movie scene, right? With, with uh, lots of uh, CGI uh, graphics. Oh, what a terrible, terrible battle of destruction. How wonderful to look at it. But that's not how God plays this. Instead of, of slaughtering the Aramean army, the Aramean soldiers are struck with blindness. Verse 18. As the enemy came toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me. I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. Samaria. It always reminds me of that classic Star Wars scene <coughs> where Obi-Wan Kenobi says, these are not the droids you are looking for. <laughs> he says, this is not the road. This is not the place you're looking for. Follow me. And this whole army follows him. And of course, they are, they're looking for him. <laughs> but he, he, so he's technically he's not lying. Uh, and, he, and he leads them. He leads them to the last place they would want to go. He leads them right into Samaria, the capital of Israel. It's kind of, to put it in a modern context, it would be like if, if somebody led the whole of the Russian army uh, and they were blinded, and then took them right into the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. Uh, that's the situation that these soldiers find themselves in. Now verse 20. After they entered the city, Elisha said, "Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see." And then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked, and they were inside Samaria. Now I can only imagine what these soldiers uh, would have experienced in that kind of situation, right? You find yourselves in the last place that you want to be, captured by your enemy in their capital. Uh, I can imagine that, um, that there were some uniforms that were not so clean afterwards. When they opened their eyes, and there they are. Now that is what I can imagine, but what we know is this we know that the king of Israel wants to kill them. He wants to kill these prisoners of war that have been delivered to him by Elisha. You know, that's uh, that's the way uh, we often we often respond, don't we? When uh, when we get a chance to get revenge on somebody, when we get a chance to do our enemies, uh, uh, to do for them what they would want to do for us. And that's, that's the way that the king of Israel is. He finally has his enemies at his feet. This is his chance to have peace for his country, if he just kills them, they'll have peace. He can get his revenge. There'll be no more enemies. There'll be no more fear. He can destroy them all. And fear causes us to do things that we might not normally do. That's one reason why God asks us, commands us, don't be afraid. The king is about to become a mass murderer, mass murderer, killing. Helpless prisoners of war. This would be unthinkable under normal circumstances, but the king is afraid, and so his morals go right out the window. What about you? Have your fears ever driven you to do something that you wouldn't normally do? Something awful? Something that, that God would never want you to do? A church friend of mine was working in in finances for a big company. And the company was doing some things that were wrong, and so he reported it. And then he started getting a lot of grief at work. And he was afraid that he'd get fired. And he had a, some young kids and a mortgage. He was barely making ends meet as it was. How would he pay his bills? He had to think, he had to think a way to make himself secure. I mean, what if the company blackballed him so he couldn't get another job in his profession? So he started siphoning off money and putting it in a secret account that only he had access to. And this way, if they fired him, he could withdraw the company's money and not have to worry. But instead, he got caught and sent to prison, leaving his his family in an even worse situation. And no one can understand how this respected church man could do such a thing. I mean, just, it seemed unthinkable. But fear can cause us to do the unthinkable. Just like Israel's king. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Don't kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you captured with your own sword or bow? No, set food and water before them so they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. Wow. Wow. He wants to kill them. And Elisha says, no, feed them. Send them home. What a... You know, perhaps the the biggest miracle in this whole story um, is not the the chariots of fire, but the biggest miracle is the king actually does it. He actually feeds his enemies. Not Not only just basic army rations, he sets a feast before them and sends them home. Remember how Jesus commanded in Matthew 5, 43, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Or Romans 12, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you heap burning coals on his head. Verse 23. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. In refusing to give in to his fear of what would happen if the Arameans were freed, in following God's command through his prophet Elisha, The country got the peace that it desired, and the king, too, could be at peace, knowing that that he hadn't resorted to his worst impulses. And I think there's a lesson there for all of us. When fear is in control, we do things that we wouldn't normally do. We lose our souls and our minds and often resort to violence of many kinds. And that's why God tells us over and over and over again, don't be afraid. But that commandment is impossible, isn't it? Even when the king, who is so brave here, even that king later gives up all hope, gives up on God, and tries to murder Elisha when the country goes through a severe famine and people are resorting to cannibalism. Now, I'm not going to read that part of the story. I think we'll just stay in this part and let's let's apply those four steps that we've been been learning uh, throughout lent here that come from the book uh, impossible commands so what's step one step one is to admit i can't do it honestly god this is impossible i mean you tell us don't be afraid but but you created us to be afraid at least in some circumstances you created us to have a healthy fear. Maybe not the anxiety that we often have as well, but, but some fear is natural. Like when something jumps out at you, you're going you're to jump back. The, this morning it was dark. I was going towards the door, and suddenly the door comes flying open right in my face, and the cat jumps out at me. I jumped back. It's natural. We do that. Fear is natural. It's a natural response, and we can't control it. It's how we stay alive. Being frightened sometimes is as natural as breathing. And telling you, don't be afraid, is a bit like telling you not to think about something. The more someone tells you not to think about something, the more you think about it. It's called the white bear problem it goes way back to the the 1800s where way back to the the 1800s where Fyodor Dostoevsky said try to pose for yourself this task not to think about a polar bear and you will see that that cursed thing comes to your mind every minute and modern science has proved him right in an experiment by psychologist Daniel Wegner people were told to, to speak every thought that came into their to their head for five minutes and they recorded it um, while they're doing this they're also told though not to think about a white bear and they found on average they thought about a white bear more than once per minute and it's the same way with fear the more we're told don't be afraid the more we think about all the things that we have to be afraid of And suddenly we're spiraling down a cycle of worry and fear and anxiety. God, you have have said, don't be afraid, but I'm afraid I can't do it. That's step one. I can't. Step two is I'm sorry, God. I confess that even when I know that you are all around me, I focus on the fears. I forget that there are more with me than there are against me because you are with me, that you fight my battle. Or better yet, the victory is yours even without a fight. I confess that I surrender to my fears and I do things that I would never do if I wasn't so worried. Things that you would never do. I'm sorry, that's step two. Step three, please help me God. Open my eyes to see Your chariots of fire protecting me. Assure me of your presence. Give me your peace. You know, Jesus promised on the night before he died to save us. He promised us this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And don't be afraid. We can have peace and freedom from our fears when we focus on Jesus, the bringer of peace. In Wagner's white bear experiment, he found one way to help people not to think about the white bear all the time. Instead of just telling them not to think about a white bear, he told them to think about a beautiful red car. And when they focused on the red car, They didn't think nearly so much about a white bear. And when we focus on Jesus, when with God's help we can see who is for us, well, then we don't worry so much about who is against us. We can actually start to not fear. And so, step four is this then let's go, God. I'm going to step out in faith and keep my eyes on you. With your help, I can have peace. With your help, I will not be afraid. Now remember, not being afraid doesn't mean being stupid. I had someone, this this is literally a true story, I had someone tell me that at a busy intersection, they could find no opening in the traffic to cross the road. And so, without fear, they just started walking out into traffic, trusting that God would lead them safely across. Now, God did. But don't put the Lord, your God, to the test. Not being afraid doesn't mean being stupid. It means not having fear control you because Jesus is in control and you see that. You see that those for you are more than those against you because God is for you. So step out in faith with your eyes fixed on Jesus. And those old white bears of fear won't pop up so often in your head. Let's pray. God, you tell us not to be afraid. Do not fear. But that's another impossible command. Because there are truly things to be afraid of. So we need your help. Help us to remember that you are for us. Help us to to remember that you are surrounding us. Open our eyes to see it when we're tempted to fear and keep our eyes focused on you and not on the size of our enemy but on how great awesome and kind you are. Lord, you are the God of impossible things. So help us not to fear. In Jesus' name. Amen.